Today on Water Cooler, Wentworth. Is it just a collection of knockabout Sydney suburbs or is there something a little bit different about it? Uh, Labor's in trouble on negative gearing. Sugar taxes aren't actually reducing the number of people drinking soft drink, we learn in Britain. No surprise there. And we'll be hearing from a most unusual uh, professor of economic history from Chicago in the United States who describes herself as an ex-socialist transsexual, but nevertheless is very, very convinced of the power of the idea of freedom. I'm Nick Cater. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And with me is Fred Paul, Communications Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And this is the water cooler for October the 26th, 2018. So, Fred, uh, Wentworth has been the topic of the week. That's Wentworth, the constituency in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, held by the Conservatives since, or the Liberals, sorry, since uh, goodness knows when. And they lost it. They lost it last Saturday. Unusual circumstances, retiring Prime Minister, a lot of uh, strong feeling about that around the place. Uh, uh, But, you know, we dare to suggest, or I suggested in a column, that uh, not too much could be read into Wentworth nationally because uh, apart from the fact it was a very unusual by-election it's a very unusual seat it, it's it, it, it's makeup it's social makeup it's social outlook it's it's cultural outlook is very different from the rest of Australia it's a beautiful part of Australia it is you live there I live there indeed yes just up the road from Bondi Beach I hasten to add that uh, my pocket of uh, Wentworth is one of the poorer pockets um, but uh, it is a, a stunning part of Australia it's not far from the harbour well it embraces on the edge of the harbour on one side and the beach on the other um, you know getting stuck in traffic in Wentworth often means you are stuck on Sid Ironfield Drive from which you can have a panoramic view of Sydney Harbour so you know I mean even even the unpleasant things about uh, Wentworth can actually be pretty pleasant. And, and people don't actually know the meaning of the word commute in the way that other Australians do, I discovered. I mean, four out of five uh, people travel less than 10 kilometres to work. And for most people, and if you're living in the outer suburbs, you'd think that was just around the corner. I mean, they don't have those many hours stuck in traffic that you do, say, if you're commuting up the M5. Or, or pay tolls, for that matter. I mean, people in Western Sydney who want to travel reasonable distances um, are hit with tolls in almost every direction. So, yeah, I mean, when I say distorted view of the rest of the country um, from Wentworth, I, I, I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, it's... It's a different view, isn't it? I, I don't want to disparage Wentworth. I think it's a wonderful thing that people aspire, like me, um, to live in such a beautiful part of the country. But uh, I think the point of your column, which was to some extent, um, surprisingly uh, misunderstood. I, I, don't, I don't accept the column was misunderstood. I mean, I, I think that's a poor excuse for a columnist. If, if people are misunderstanding, it's not, it's, it's not written clearly enough. Well, when we posted on... Well, I was referring to the, the post on Facebook, which, you know, people accused you of, of indulging in the politics of envy, which is... Politics of envy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the last thing I would have expected anyone to accuse you of. I mean, uh, I mean, you're a pom, I know, but uh, you, you're very much an egalitarian like the rest of us. I wouldn't so, mind a few more Bob, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Come and join me in Wentworth, but, mate. There's, yeah, there's, no, okay. there's, no, that, that was, I mean, the, 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 I think that was that was beside the point. I mean, the point was not that the you know the average family in Wentworth earns twice as much a week as the average family in Tasmania. That they I mean, as they do. That that's not the point. The point is really about how different circumstances, different economic environment uh, 
gives you a different social and, and cultural outlook and, and therefore your attitude on things like uh, climate change on as we saw at the weekend on boat on, on boat people or, or children in detention in Nauru you know many of these issues same-sex marriage dare I say uh, becomes quite different um, because it's a different cultural environment and and people have different experiences I mean significantly you know uh, I think uh, in the sub- su- suburb of Wallara for instance there in the heart of went with 61% of people that have a university degree and that's extraordinarily high you know if you look into Bell and the central coast it's about 20%. The other factor that affects your outlook on life and outlook on the world and politics and so on is the job that you have. And you've looked up at the, the what are the top 10 jobs in Wentworth, mate? <laughs> the top 10 jobs in Wentworth. Advertising, public relations and sales managers, yep. 3,002. <laughs> Advertising and marketing professionals, 2,443. Yeah. Next, <laughs> solicitors. Next, sales assistants, uh, chief executives, managing directors, bosses, in other words, accountants, management and organisation analysts. I wonder how they feel they're working out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, accountants, uh, management and organisation analysts, human resource professionals, sales representatives, and wait for it, number 10, real estate agents. <laughs> And Canning on in Western Australia, that's Andrew Hastie's seat. What about, uh, I think his office is about 70 kilometres south of the CBD of Perth. Uh, completely different array of jobs. Sales assistant, common, but that's number one. Number two, metal fitters and machinists, drillers and miners. Uh, number three, firers. <laughs> Maybe that, that could be the CEOs in Wentworth, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. There's 1,482 of them, but I, I know there is a big uh, aluminium smelter, I think, in uh, in Canning, and that's probably a technical job. It, it does useful things like make aluminium. Um, uh, next, tr- number four, truck drivers. Number five, general clerks. Number six, retail managers. Number seven, registered nurses. Eight, aged and disabled carers, nine electricians, and ten primary school teachers. Not an advertising executive in sight, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And ironically enough, uh, that's Scott Morrison's uh, heartland, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, But, but, you know, those occupations uh, you've just listed there, I mean, if you can can get the hearts and minds of of that, those demographics, then uh, you're you're, uh, well on the way to... um, governing australia in a in a responsible and uh sort of i I think that's right fred and that's the political point i think to make and paul kelly made it very well on wednesday in the australian when he said it's not politics that's divided it's us and uh i think it's true that that any any politician that knows knows how to do their job will come to reflect the views of their electorate they have to they've got an interest in doing it and if they don't uh, then watch out and i think it's true that uh you know andrew hasty often called a uh, conservative lives in what seems like a more conservative area. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, thought of as a sort of uh, small L liberal, as they call, lives in what looks in many ways like a small L liberal constituency. Kevin Andrews, for instance, in the in the seat of Menzies, possibly the most conservative seat in the country, judging from some of these uh, indications that you pick up from going through the census, and and a very conservative uh, member. So, I think that that's it. And 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 the challenge, the political challenge, is how a political party like Labour or the Liberals manages to. Uh, govern for both those constituencies with their very different interests. John Howe was probably the last uh, political leader to manage that, uh, manage it well. And uh, and since then, 
politicians have found it very hard. They've been caught between these two issues, um, which I don't think is necessarily a reflection on them. It's, it's more of a reflection on the times. Yeah, you made the point the other day that uh, since John Howard left politics, we have witnessed the rise of social media, which is, um, for all its benefits, um, has a very um, fracturing and polarising influence on people's opinions because people tend to, uh, you know, um, withdraw into silos of, of, of opinions that bolster their own uh, identity. And as a result, we've seen the rise of identity politics. I think that that's, that's far from coincidental. But it's funny you should also mention that because because I, I, I reread the introduction to John Howard's new, the, the, uh, the new paperback edition of John Howard's book, The Art of Persuasion, and Mr. Howard has written a fantastic introdu- introduction to it, and he made this really good point, which I've put up on the, as our quote of the week on our website, and it is, uh, quote, "...identity politics breaks a fundamental tenet of political persuasion. A party's manifesto should be broad enough to appeal to individuals in all sections of the community, irrespective of gender, race or other identity. John Howard was a master of, of, of that at a time when it was relatively easy to do. But wouldn't it be wonderful to hear a, hear a, a leader say something like that again now? Yeah, well, that's the task ahead for Scott Morrison and indeed Bill Shorten, if he, if he seriously wants to become leader. Um, to govern for the whole country and not be swayed by sexual interests and identity politics. Fred, I think uh, Labor's in a spot of bother on its policy on negative gearing, uh, you know, reducing the negative gearing allowances for uh, investors in, in, uh, in property. Um, and uh, they've uh, they come under a bit of fire because I think that the, the report by the Housing Industry Association on Monday... Uh, by Cadence Economics, pretty authoritative firm based in Canberra, uh, seemed to really knock on the head the idea they'll actually reduce uh, prices by this, reduce house prices, and there'll be a whole lot of other negative um, unintended consequences coming as a result. I, it's now looking pretty unfeasible and unpopular a policy, I would have thought. Oh, mate, this is, uh, I think this is actually a triple whammy of a blunder. The rule of thumb in the housing industry is that you divide the population into three groups. One third doesn't own, one third is paying off their house, and one third has paid off their house. And Labor's policy seems to alienate all three of those groups. I mean, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't do worse if you tried. If the analysis is correct, then Labor is in deep trouble over this. The, uh, the response... I think from Labor is typical of our times in that, you know, someone in Canberra has identified a problem and decided that the the solution must have something to do with government policy. So Labor's response is, oh, we need to we need to uh, get rid of um, negative gearing. The, the the effect of that will be it'll drive up rental prices and drive down uh, housing values. So, um, so but what the actual solution? I discovered a few years ago when I did a big report on this for the Australian is that um, is that you just need to get government out of the way. It's not about government coming up with policies to fix the solution. Government needs to get out of the way. Yeah, well, the point is that I mean the solution to this has to be supply, right? I mean, if you go yeah. if you if you're in the in in the market for a house and you go to you know let's say Camberwell. Uh, that's where you want to buy. You know, you know, you know. Every Saturday, you're joining a queue of about fifty people, and you're getting out bid. Shortage of supply 
boosts prices, and and that's the same citywide. So if you've got a city that's expanding, what seventy thousand or so a year, like Melbourne, um, and you can't build enough houses for that, then obviously the price is going to go up. That solution has to be a supply side one. You you know I don't see how government fiddling can do much. A government the only thing government can do is encourage. Uh, and and assist and and put the incentives in place for for private developers to build more houses. That's about the most useful thing government could do. I would have thought. There are some developers who are more than prepared to to uh, to bu- to build the uh, utilities themselves, but even getting the um, approval for that is taking years and years. So, yeah, if if there is a solution to this problem to this impasse then uh, it's, it's, it's less government policy, not more. Isn't that so often the case? <laughs> so, but the, in the meantime, we are being squeezed. Australia's you know, kind of lifestyle is, is changing a lot. We are now being squeezed into smaller and smaller places. And kids, kids don't have gardens to play in, which leads you to your next topic. Exactly. <laughs> you saw this. I flagged this one coming. So that, that segues nicely into the issue of the sugar tax. What's happened on that this week, Nick? Well, uh, Britain imposed a sugar tax, that is a tax on sugar-sweetened soft drinks in April, I believe, and uh, it was supposed to uh, have a really dramatic effect, reduce consumption and therefore reduce obesity. It turns out the first evidence, reliable evidence that's coming in, shows that it has done neither. It hasn't reduced consumption of soft and sugary drinks nor has it reduced obesity, but they're not giving up, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's they, uh, they're they're like a dog with a bone. The people with these, uh, the people behind this sugar tax. So what's happened is Nielsen has conducted a survey of consumers in Britain and found that uh, that consumer behaviour has not changed in the slightest. But there's a there's a seemingly paradoxical other finding from this survey and that is that consumers also want the tax to be extended to other sugary products. This sugar tax was announced two years in advance and the, um, the, uh, the beverage industry over there uh, acted in advance by reducing the sugar in its products so so they would avoid the tax. But that's good. I mean, that's the market being proactive. And I'm not sure the threat of the sugar tax. Exactly. Of course, it, they, they go by market trends. I mean, you go to any supermarket aisle now and you'll see you know a larger amount of space de- devoted to Coke Zero or, or, or Diet Coke than you used to and I mean so so you don't you don't you don't need the sledgehammer of the tax and that's that I think is a clear finding out of Britain for me that the tax hasn't worked but wait a minute wait a minute what they're saying now is it's raised awareness (laughs) I love that one whenever whenever a policy idea doesn't work that's always the fallback isn't it we raised awareness yeah yeah less informed people now know how stupid they are (laughs) that's right you know it's like I could walk down George Street or raise awareness that summer's on its way in speedos and sunglasses <laughs> and, you know it reminded me of that that that, uh, that, that, that great series we, we 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 can be heroes you remember the chris, the Lilly, chris Lilly, yeah and there was a quest for australian of the year and there was pat mullins <laughs> the the housewife from perth who was going to roll 
all the way from Perth to Uluru to raise awareness for skeletal dysplasia or something. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's a very worthy cause, but uh, let's not laugh. She had a difficult time for it. Uh, you remember that episode when she got a gum nut stuck in her nose and she, she couldn't go any further? So anyway, raising awareness, that's what sugar tax has come to. Well, it's its actually emblematic of, of what's really at the heart of these things, is, and that is that... People who think they're better better informed than others just want um, everyone else to think like they do. Raising awareness is is almost a euphemism for um, uh, you know groupthink. Uh, indeed, and let's, we should just say, of course, we are not encouraging people to grow obese by eating too much sugar. It's a bad thing. <laughs> or rolling or rolling along the side of the road to raise awareness for, for no, very good purposes. No, 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 indeed. I think both are, both can be dangerous, <laughs> uh, life-threatening things, and we, we should discourage them, but, but people need to make their own choices. In a moment, we'll be hearing from Deirdre McCloskey, the distinguished professor uh, in economic history from uh, the University of Illinois in Chicago. It's a remarkable interview. She's a remarkable woman, a remarkable intellect, and what she says about the idea of liberalism, I think, is uh, is very, very profound. But first, we better put in a bit, quick plug, Fred, for some of the things that are coming up. We've got a busy program coming up in the next month. Mate, we're a pretty busy little think tank for the next month. We are indeed. And we've got some really big stars uh, to um, for, to bring to, the, uh, to our loyal supporters and stakeholders starting with dan hannon well this is uh this is going to be fantastic mm, dan hannon the uh euro mp the conservative euro mp famous for that uh that great youtube clip where he lays into former british prime minister gordon brown calls him the, the devalued prime minister of the devalued can catch him but look dan's uh dan's a good friend of of the men's research center we're bringing him over uh, from the UK, he arrives in Perth on the uh, on the the one hop flight on Qantas on Tuesday. Where I'll be meeting him for the event in Perth that night. There's still places available to hear Dan Hannan talk about Brexit, about freedom, and uh, and other matters of common interest. And well, why? Well, I think your I think your catchphrase for the for the uh, event was why London is now closer to Perth than it is to Brussels. Yeah, because is- uh, Dan's a great believer in the success and the bonds between the English speaking countries. Uh, and uh, in many ways, he says, the, the attitude in, in Perth or indeed in anywhere else in the English-speaking world is more close and more sympathetic to the British approach to economics and life and liberty than the French. So Dan would be great. That's on Tuesday night and uh, on our website. You can book places for that. And on uh, on Wednesday, Dan and I are flying to Melbourne and we'll be doing some uh, event, an event there jointly with uh, John Roskam at the IPA. Again, you can get the link to that from our website. Uh, on Thursday, what's coming up on Thursday, Fred? Oh, we've got the launch of the new paperback edition um, of The Art of Persuasion, which is which has been a massive uh, success for the MRC and for John Howard, our former Prime Minister. So, yeah, Mr. this Howard, is the first time I think that the, the MRC's public or Japarit Press, our printing press, it's the first time we've we've published a book in hardback that's been so so successful we've bought it out in paperback so it's been uh, oh this is our paperback debut i had i hadn't thought of that yeah well i mean mr howard is you know he's he's the rock star of our of our demographic he, wherever we uh wherever we held an event with him he is uh, he is mobbed by 
um, adoring followers, and and rightly so. So he will be there to launch the new edition. Um, it is a revised edition. It's got a new introduction um, in paperback and will be available to sign it. But uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be, and that's in uh, Castle Hill in uh, Sydney's northwest. We decided to get out of the CBD, get away from Wentworth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I've uh, my my brain's uh, run out of, of what else we're doing. We've got a fair bit coming up. We've got launching David, Kemp. David Kemp's book. That's the David land of dreams. David Kemp, the the Sydney launch, but the the big. Uh, uh, attraction for that is that Paul Kelly will be talking to David Kemp. Now, you couldn't imagine two better people to discuss the uh, the optimism and significance of the early days of Australia. I think that's November fourteenth, Wednesday, and finally our uh, our uh, our flagship event, if you like, the the John Howard lecture. It might be the date. Is it the twentieth or twenty third? November nineteen. November nineteen in Sydney at the Wesley uh, Centre. Stephen Harper, one of the great centre-right leaders since Margaret Thatcher, there giving the John Howard Lecture with, and followed by a conversation with John Howard. So two great centre-right leaders there in conversation. And so finally to uh, a conversation that I recorded in the Canary Islands in Spain uh, uh, last month, uh, earlier this month, uh, on the fringes on a, of a conference on free market economics. Deirdre McCloskey is an extraordinary woman. I'll let her describe herself. I'm a, I'm a, um, a postmodern, uh, quantitative, um, Episcopalian, form, uh, Anglican, former atheist uh, who lives in Chicago and was raised in Boston and was once a man. So that was Deirdre McCloskey, the Distinguished Professor of Economics, History and English at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Uh, Deirdre has just published a remarkable uh, trilogy of books, uh, the final edition of which was Bourgeois Equality, How Ideas, Not Capital or Institutions, Enrich the World. And Deirdre's central thesis is that it's not institutions, it's not wars, it's not conquests that make a society it's ideas. And when you have a powerful idea like the idea of freedom, uh, then a country can really take off. Let's listen to my conversation with Deirdre. Deirdre, it seems to me that, that what you're saying is pretty much the way we've come to think about Australia as a country that works because of an idea. Well, that's right. Well, for example, the idea of equality or the absence of, of privilege, which is much stronger in Australia than it is in the United States, and, of course, vastly stronger than in uh, what Australians once called home. And this idea that everyone should be allowed to have a go is deeply liberal. It's not the socialist idea. It's not the conservative idea. Mm. The, the socialist idea is that they shouldn't have a go. They should be organized from the top. Conservative as an idea is they shouldn't go anywhere, should stay where they are. Whereas um, I think what makes your economy and ours and any economy that adopts this principle dynamic is the equal freedom to start a business or, or change your employment, move to another part of the country. We should we should spell this out because when when you we speak of equality in this context, it's not no, it's not it's flat not, equality of outcome, no, is it? No, it's not equality of outcome. It's not. Fr- I call it French equality. That's Rousseau and Helvetius. They wanted equality of outcome, as our socialist friends do, 
And uh, no, it's it's Scottish equality. It's D David Hume and, and Adam Ferguson and, and the blessed Adam Smith, which was an equality uh, of respect and dignity, which is very prominent in, uh, in Australian society. I, I've, I've, I've never known a more passionately egalitarian society. It has some has some bad effects because there is a sense in Australia of cutting down the tall uh, poppies. But if you get away from cutting down and just let the poppies grow, <laughs> it works. And in, in those periods in which Australia has done that, its, uh, its economy and its art, its poetry has flourished. It, it seems to be essentially too a liberal idea in the, the, the central point to it is freedom. Individuals yes. have the freedom yes. to be their best selves, as, as yes. Robert Menzies spoke Yes, of. that's right. To, to, to be their best selves is a, is a noble sentiment. And it's, it's part of the sporting metaphors. They're very prominent in Australians thinking about themselves. I mean, here's this comparatively to, you know, this tiny little country, even small compared with Britain, uh, that, that has always prided itself on being the best in tennis or in, in, unfortunately, in cricket, since I support England. And this is very old in Australia. In the late 19th century, people would do running races and bicycle races. And every Australian man and many Australian women have this sporting view of the world. Well, exactly. And I always think it, you could see it in the work culture too, particularly, say, in the, the shearing gangs. Yeah, yeah. They were competitive enterprises. Click goes the shears, boys. Click, click, click. That's right. Which was all about who would be the, the gun yeah. shearer, the one yeah, who did best. Yeah, and it's the it's, yeah. It's a very rare thing to find, but it's a very positive dynamic when it It works, is, whereas it? In, in back at home in England and Scotland, the the ethic was don't break the pace. Keep it low so, so that you extract more from the bosses. And that, uh, the whole idea of piecework in the, in the Industrial Revolution it was yeah. sort of frowned upon, wasn't it? It was a very bad thing to do. And yet well, it was, it was supposed to be a bad thing for the workers, but actually for the productive workers, it's good. And that's the danger of, uh, of cutting down the tall poppies because then the unusual people are discouraged. But on the whole, that hasn't been true in Australian culture or history and certainly not in sports. Let's, let's go to the converse of what we've been talking about, which is, which is what you hear about more and more now in Australia, which is this uh, fairness, equality oh, sort of narrative. Oh, they talk about it all the time. It's nuts. It, it seems to me to have really come alive on the left since the financial crisis. It has, and it, it's a shame. I, I have a long review of Thomas Piketty's book, which I say, I conclude it's a brave book, but it's wrong. It's not a silly book. He's not a bad man, but it's 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 deeply scientifically and especially ethically wrong, because it's not interested in freedom. It is interested in equality of result. Let's tax the doctors to pay the street sub sweepers more, and if you do that, you're just going to wreck your economy. People are going to be um, not going to be bothered to become doctors if they can make just as much money going out and sweeping the street. So, I, was, I was asked recently to, to, to go on a, a discussion of something called yeah. the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, yeah, yeah. which is you, you probably 
now would, is actually the festival of very safe ideas. Yeah, but. exactly. Say, all the ideas that the, 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 that the left has. That, uh, That's right. And they wanted me to speak in favor of equality, inequality. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah. thought, I said, look, I'm not going to speak in favor of inequality. It's not yeah. something I'm in favor of. It's I don't just want something. artificial inequality. No, it's just something that is, right? See, that's the core of 18th century liberalism was, as the, as the great Thomas Paine said, give to every person all the rights that I claim for myself. <laughs> so we don't have any special rights. Mm. In fact, in the old, older English, the word liberties means the opposite of what you might think. It means special privileges. If you get, if you're a, a free man of the city of London, you get special privileges. No, Paine said, no, 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 we don't want those. We want everyone to have a go, everyone to have a chance. And that's what I mean by equality. I mean against privilege. Now, there, there are some issues, though. I mean, look, if you're, if you're rich, you send your kid to Sydney Grammar School, and he goes on to Harvard and to uh, the Sloan School at MIT for his MBA and makes uh, a million. So, so there's a sense in which the upper middle class is privileged. But my solution to that is not to cut down the tall poppies, but to nourish the short poppies, to help kids go to Sydney Grammar whose dad does not own a coal mine or something. But let's move on to something, a thorny topic which I wrote about on Monday, and this is identity politics. Yeah. In particular, the LGBT rights, as we talk about it. Yeah, yeah. You, you, may, you might have well, something have, to say about it. I have that, an but... opinion about it, and, I, and I'm always commenting in the, in the London Times in the comment section, not in any serious way, against the repeated outbursts of anti-trans rhetoric that you get from conservatives, the, the Times yeah. of London. And, and you probably f see it in lots of Australian newspapers, too. And it's, oh, God, these people are asking for special rights. No, all we're asking for is, is for one thing, is politeness. If people want to be called she or born as he's, or increasingly it's true that it seems to be equal uh, uh, the other way around, it's just courteous, just ordinary courtesy to go along with it. That's, there's nothing special about it. It's equality. Mm. It's like e equality in gay marriage. When the gay marriage movement in the United States shifted from we're queer and we're here, we want to get married, to the theme of equality, marriage equality, it started to change people's minds. Now a majority of Americans think that gay marriage is perfectly okay. And that, that's how it should be, because it's not hurting anyone, and it's, um, it's an expression of love. But I, I don't, I have to uh, uh, um, point out that I don't agree with identity politics in general. Because we have so many identities, I'm a I'm a, um, a postmodern uh, quantitative um, Episcopalian former Anglican former atheist uh, who lives in Chicago and was raised in Boston and was once a man. I mean, you know, I've, I'm all There's kinds a lot of to unpack there. We haven't got I'm time. all kinds of things, as we all are, any any person with a much life. I think what troubled me was recently when, uh, it, within the Labour Party in Australia, the idea surfaced again that they would have a quota. They would have an LGBT quota in yeah. Parliament. So, therefore, they'd have to enforce this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, well, that, to me, seems to be... That is not egalitarianism, I, as I understand it. It's... it's, it's 
affirmative action is a dangerous idea. In the United States, affirmative action for African-Americans has mainly helped upper middle class blacks. And that's not what it's supposed to do. I have a friend in the English department at my own university um, who's made the point that what we should be af doing affirmative action for are poor people, uh, are people who's, who, whose family has never been to university, who don't think they should rise in the social, um, well, alas, hierarchy, that they shouldn't do well in life. And it's those people that our social policy should be, whether they're gay or or, or black or yellow or whatever they are shouldn't or male or female shouldn't matter. It seems to me they've 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 shifted the the language on this. They used to talk about the poor and now they talk about the most vulnerable. Which yeah, I know, I know, I know. They're they're continuing mental gymnastics on the left, which kind of irritate me. But I was once a socialist, so I, I and I have many Marxist friends whom I love, and so I. I, I, I try not to get angry at them. We should look for the most vulnerable, but we shouldn't assume that all women are vulnerable, all gays or all trans people are vulnerable. They're, they're not. But, you know, I get interviewed by journalists, particularly on the left, and they'll ask me, um, have I been discriminated against? Well, how would I know? I, I've, I changed gender when I was 53. I was a, a successful male academic. Now I'm a successful female academic, and I've not experienced discrimination. Now, young people, that's more serious for them. But on the other hand, I'm amazed at how attitudes towards transgender stuff has changed in the last 10 years. It has, hasn't it? I changed in 95. In fact, I had my operation in Australia. <laughs> in, 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 we got very, very good Sydney. doctors. <laughs> well, I was, I was there for a conference in the English department, and I thought, well, I'll just have it off, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> where did you, where did you lose your socialism? Well, it's slowly, and I'm still what you might call a bleeding heart libertarian or a Christian liberal. Um, I believe we have a an, a positive obligation to, to the poor, but we got to stop doing things that we think are for the poor that actually hurt the poor, like the minimum wage. Or indeed, even like uh, immigration restrictions, which reduce opportunities for trade to basically no one's benefit. Just to come back to where we started on this idea of Australia, the idea that makes Australia successful, we're, yeah. we're just about to publish, as I mentioned, um, a five-volume history of Australian liberalism by Dr. David Kemp, and, and his thesis is that we were a liberal country from the start. We of course were founded, you were. We were founded by uh, idealists, really, classical liberal idealists, sure. and that that was made us successful. You know Australian history. You've studied Australian history. You can make the comparison with the United States. Where do you see the comparison? Well, the, 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 the obvious similarity is the frontier, the outback or the west in the United States. Now, actually, Australia has been the most urban country in the world since the 1870s. So this is something that even most Australians don't understand, that this myth mm. of the west, once a jolly swagman, camped by a billabong and all that, is a tiny part of Australian society. Most people lived 
in Melbourne and, and Sydney. But it's the same in the United States. Most people had nothing to do with the frontier. They were back east. Or, or the, after the frontier moved west, they were in the big cities like my city of Chicago. But that m myth of the west or, or the outback is, has been very important in both of our countries in the formation of our, our, our vision of ourselves. And it's really a liberal vision in the sense that you're allowed to do what you damn well please. Uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you want to go, go get drunk at 5 o'clock, you do. The swill, as you call it. Five, is it the 5 o'clock swill or 6 o'clock? 6 o'clock swill. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I, I understand it doesn't. <laughs> uh, um, hurry up, please. It's time. But the, the, um, we, we both have these crucial myths, and we ought to be using them as weapons, <laughs> I don't want to say this so violently, as, as arguments against um, socialism, um, um, top-down uh, organization of people. Um, I, you know, you, you're, you're a free person on the frontier. But he was wrong, because <laughs> as long as you have the idea of frontierism in, 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 in either of our countries, you have this sense of opportunity. I mean, anyone, anyone who comes from, I don't know, the, the Czech Republic or, or China or uh, old China especially or India or South or uh, wherever or Britain for that matter, who comes to Australia or the United States, the thing they say over and over again is you can be anything you want in these countries. Now, we all know that's not actually true. The American dream or the uh, Australian vision of of the lucky country and so forth, is partly baloney. But so many people believe in it, especially the immigrants. They have this feeling, oh, I've gotten away from Scotland. Thank God. Now I can, you know, prosper, and not just money, but in other ways too. Now, I, I write about this because I, I was a migrant to Australia, and, and I explain this, that the migrant, the migrant imperative, you, you come to Australia because... You've told everybody, or well, your family and friends, that you're going to a better place. Yeah. And you've got to make it a better place. Yeah, Even that's if true. it's not a better place, you've got to make it so. And that's I think an excellent that's point. the experience of countless migrants to both our countries. That's an excellent and very deep point. It's true of my adopted part of the country, which is the Midwest. I come from the Northeast, but I, I've always worked in the Midwest. I've always felt, Deirdre, that if you're going to pick a part of Australia, that, uh, part of America, which Australia most resembles, it's certainly the Midwest. Yeah, I think so too. And it's that pioneering ethos. Yeah, it's 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 pioneering, but 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 you're quite right. The novels of Cather, Willa Cather, are the are the great expression of this in the United States. And there there is a sense of a, so, so to speak internal frontier, and and it, just as you say, it's a very nice way of expressing it. That you come, you've you, you've. Well, you burnt your bridges. That's right. There's a famous painting in the mid-19th century called, called The Last of England, which is a couple on a ship sailing away from England, and they can see the cliffs of Dover in the background. And that's what you've done. You've cut your ties. And so, as you say, you have to make it look good, or you, mm. or you, or you look like a damn fool.
<laughs> you, if, if, you, if you go to Australia and you, you're miserable. Exactly. I remember that moment vividly. I write about it in the book. When we arrived at Sydney Airport, I had two young kids and a wife. I'd given up a job at the Where? BBC uh, oh, in, in, in England. Yeah. I'd given up a job at the BBC. We'd sold the house. We'd sold the car. And I remember that sensation. I had no keys on me because yeah, I, didn't yeah. have, I didn't have nothing to lock up. Yeah, and sure. and the, I felt... We felt exhilarated and terrified in equal measure. Well, you know, there there's a there's also a myth of geographical mobility within the United States. I think it's true of Australia too. Now, it, it is a myth. And in fact, some countries like Canada are actually more mobile than the United States these days, and it's somewhat disturbing. But um, my my mother, for example, made her made her living for many years after my father died by moving. She would move to a house that she'd spotted on the market in another town that looked good, and she'd move into it, fix it up, and sell it. That was her income mm. for about, uh, about about a quarter of a century. But there's she has this wonderful Norwegian sense of the Viking venturing, and that's good. Uh, it's not it's not everything that's good. We we also need cozy communities and. To feel rooted. I, I guess we need both as humans. We do. And we need family. We need family. And it's the family that's portable. The, the nuclear family you can take to California or take to Australia. I, um, I remember when our neighbor, when I was a teenager, our neighbors next door moved to California. This was in the 50s. And that was the great thing that they did is to drive across the country and forsake the East Coast for the new life of Finally, you, in, the, in, the, in the talk I've just heard you give, uh, you spoke of being an optimist and the importance of that. I am. It is a liberal, it, it has to be central to the liberal idea. If you, if you lose optimism, you stop moving forward. Well, it, that's right. And, and it's, it's, it's an optimism of freedom. Because the optimism of the socialist, dogmatic socialist, is an optimism based on pessimism in a way it's it's we're going to be optimistic because we're going to force things to be thus and such whereas the liberal has an optimistic view of the future because it's worked out so far to have free people has been has worked well and she's confident that it's going to continue to work out the conservative is terrified um oh damn gay marriage oh god how disgusting there's a so I, I think our it's it's a tremendous mistake to think of the liberals as being conservative. They're not. They're not on the conservative socialist axis at all, because the conservative socialist axis is all about exercising vast governmental power. And and we say, no, we'll have a government, small government, and then we'll let you do what you want to do. We'll help the poor, but not classes of people. Well, thank you for your time, Deirdre. We'll, we'll welcome you back to Australia, I hope, on a anytime, future occasion. Anytime anyone gives me an honorary degree, I'm willing to come back. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> that was Deirdre McCloskey, uh, extraordinary uh, woman 
friend, and she's a great lover of Australia. She she comes here quite regularly. Loves cricket actually, and uh, is a good friend of uh, friend of ours, Jonathan Pinkers. Uh, what I was interested in, really, in the context of today's identity politics, was what she said about uh, about being a, a transsexual. Uh, and she she doesn't treat it obviously as a matter of identity politics. All she asks for a little is for a little bit of politeness. It seems fair enough. Yeah, I, it it re- just reminds me of the the fundamentals. One of the fundamentals of of what we believe in here at the MRC, and that is equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. And also that that that's probably. Of all the things about Deirdre is the least important thing in my mind, possibly secondary least important to the colour of her skin. You know, it is it is the content of people's character. It is the quality of their intellect. It is the, what they contribute that matters. Uh, and the emphasis on these sort of, you know, fairly peripheral matters to my mind is, is, is just overwhelming at the moment. But in the end, I mean, Deirdre's name will be remembered uh, for years to come, not because of, uh, you know, she did something which I suppose is extraordinarily brave in many ways to change her gender, but, but because of the quality of her intellect and what she's contributed to our intellectual life. Indeed. And it's the, it's the way people define themselves. I mean, she, she obviously defines herself as a transgendered person, but doesn't do it in a way that uh, expects sympathy or special treatment. You know, I mean, she has an obvious um, kind of uh, enthusiasm for life and curiosity about the world. And that's just the way the greatest people have always been defined, you know, or that's the way the greatest people have behaved, you know, but your uh, your peculiarities um, you know, might make you interesting company or or a bit idiosyncratic, but really, when it comes down to it, it's what you achieve in life that matters most. So that's water cooler for this week, Fred. Uh, we should just ask a favour of listeners because we need your help. Please do, yes. Please subscribe to this on to our podcast on iTunes, and if you do. Just uh, give us a little five-star review. Don't bother with a one-star review because that would just be wasting your time and ours. Um, But uh, five-star reviews will help us enormously and uh, will help us um, produce more and more of these podcasts. And And, uh, we welcome your feedback by email or text, whatever you want to do, uh, particularly on a thorny question here, and that's the question of the harmonica (laughs) music. Yeah, are you a blues man or a reggae man? I mean, I, you I, want the bongos. I'm on the bongos and Nick. Well, I'm the boss, and I, I put a I put a blanket ban on bongos. <laughs> but uh, I'm open to debate on the harmonica. I'd rather like it, but uh, I don't know. If you, uh, people have got other suggestions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'd love to hear. So, yeah, please send them in. <laughs>